Psalm 82 this evening, if you'll turn there together with me. And it's a short psalm, so what I'll do is just read down through and then we'll go back and kind of take a look. When we have a shorter psalm, we can kind of do that just to kind of hear it and then go back and unpack it together. Psalm 82, another psalm of Ahaz, tells us that God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Psalm 82 is a unique psalm in the sense that it's sort of God as the judge of all the earth. And you notice that's what he's called there in verse 8. He is the judge of all the earth. Ultimately, God is the ruler of all things. And sort of what we have here is the judge of all the earth calling court to session. And he is basically putting on the judgment seat or bringing up to the chair for judgment and evaluation and even their sentencing, all of the human judges who render judgments on this earth, those who have been given a role or opportunity to have authority over society, over mankind. And that is indeed a unique role to have the authority to actually serve as a judge and to be able to render judgments that can be life-altering to people's lives. Uh, And here now we have the judge, the ultimate judge, bringing them into judgment for the ways in which they have abused their power or not used it correctly or justly. You notice that as the psalm begins, it tells us that God himself, it says, stands in the congregation of the mighty and he judges, verse 1, it says, among the gods. And notice there's a small g there. There certainly should in your translation. Uh, it's a, not a reference to God himself. But the idea of using the term gods, it's Elohim. It's the plural form. And on occasion, as a reference to those who, you might say, acted as gods in the sense that they were able to render judgments in regards to the fate of people. And so in that sense, a judge in a judicial sense does have a godlike role that in the same way that God, the ultimate judge, can make a determination and that affects the fate of a person uh, in the same way that God does that eternally, those who serve as judges judicially kind of have a godlike authority in a much smaller sense to be able to render a decision that has a major impact upon the fate of a human being, those who they rule over with their authority. And you can tell that's what he's referring to there when he renders this statement, who judges among the gods, the Elohim. And again, he says, verse 2 there, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So you can tell from the context that's what he's referring to here. The term Elohim that's used there, that term is used, the Hebrew term, On numerous occasions in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, we find it, as well as in Exodus chapter 22 as well. Again, that same chapter referring to those who functioned in a judicial sense among the society or the congregation of the nation of Israel. And they had a very important role from God's perspective because the degree of authority that they held to be able to make decisions to interpret situations, and then to execute their authority and judgments over the people in a civil sense carried a huge weight of responsibility. 
Uh, and it really was able to determine, as I said, the outcome and the fate of people's lives uh, to some degree, not just whether it was a temporary punishment, but at other times it was capital punishment. It was actually the end or the termination of someone's lives. So uh, in regards to that, the Bible tells us the way they were supposed to judge. In fact, Leviticus chapter uh, 19, verse 15 says this, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So notice, God wanted these judges who were given that role of authority, and they, in a sense, from God's perspective, had a, had a role that was to some degree exercising a measure of the authority of God. On a human level, they were supposed to carry out judgments on a civil sense in regards to that which would be appropriate to those who violated the ways of God, the Old Testament law, which were not only moral and spiritual laws, but they also were civil laws that would govern the life of the people. And so the judges were carrying a degree of God's authority and supposed to function on God's behalf to render just and proper judgments when situations would arise. And it's interesting that God's command regarding justice is that they were not to do injustice in their judgment. They weren't to be partial. They were to interpret the law properly. They were to execute judgments in a just and in a balanced manner. They weren't to be overly severe and abuse their authority, nor were they to really show, in a sense, a degree of restraint and give people a free pass and not properly carry out judgment or justice. When someone had did something where the punishment was worthy, if you would, of, of the crime that had been committed among the people. So God says they weren't to do injustice. They were to fairly and accurately interpret the law and to execute judgments. And that was necessary in order to keep a degree of civility among the society so that evil was punished and good was honored and it kept things peaceful and safe in a society. That has always been the role of a judge to do such. So he says, you're not to do injustice in your judgment. And notice they, they weren't to be swayed by favoritism or partiality or bribery in some ways. Well, if I make this decision or I render this judgment, there's some kickback that I'll get out of that. You know, whether it's you know getting the next vote or in some political sense, or whether it's getting some financial bribe. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. And God even said in the Old Testament here, they were not to be partial. He says to the poor, and that's interesting. The idea is that they weren't to look at people who were in a difficult spot and be partial to them just because they were poor. In other words, well, I mean, yes, this person committed a crime, but I mean, their background was so hard. They're poor. They're already struggling economically. They've gone through a life of hardship. So therefore, you know, I mean, even though they did this, we're going to bend the law and we're going to give them sort of a free pass and an excuse because of their poverty. And the idea is kind of playing the victim role. Well, I mean, I mean, they're just a victim of their society and their situation. And because they're in poverty, we're going to be partial to them. And the idea is that you go softer on them and you don't expect what you do of everyone else just because of the poverty or the circumstances they were in. And God says, don't do that. Just because someone may have tough circumstances, that does not give them a right to disobey the law or to behave badly. That, that's not going to ever help. Being partial to those who kind of, in a sense, get a free pass. And the idea is, well, then the idea is, is you can commit crime and there'll be, no, there'll be no accountability. That's not good. And God says on the other side of that, you shouldn't honor the person of the mighty. In other words, well, I mean, you know, that person's a very important person in our society or they have money or they could do something or pay somebody off. And, and so we're going to go easier on them and, and, and we're not going to you know, punish them. We're going to let them get out of it or buy their way out of something with bribery or because they're somebody important. You know, they're an important person in the society or they're a very respected individual. So therefore, we're going to let them escape. And, and God says, look, erring on either side is a wrong thing. He says, in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. And, and here God's problem was and what he's calling to account these judges is look what he says, verse two in our Psalm. He says, Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is what they were doing. They were showing partiality. And here's the sad thing. They were showing partiality to, to the wicked, 
to those who were doing wrong, instead of giving them justice and proper punishment to purge them from wrongdoing so they don't become repeat offenders and to give justice to those who are legitimate victims. That is how the, the, the system is supposed to work, that those who are offenders are to be punished so that those who are victims have a sense of justice in what was done to them as well as it protects those who are offenders from being repeat offenders. And God says here, you're showing partiality to the wicked and you're judging unjustly. And I'll tell you something, there is probably no more, to some degree, detrimental thing that can be happening than when a judicial system in a society becomes corrupt. When a judicial system in a society becomes corrupt, it just opens Pandora's box to just a moral downslide because all of a sudden there, there are no rules anymore. You're, there are escape clauses here or there, and it just causes, and the psalm indicates to that, just complete instability in a culture, complete instability in a society. So God's speaking to these judges because basically they were individuals who could determine the fate of individuals. I mean, think about the reality of a judge. With one word, a judge can put an end to someone's life, guilty. With one word, someone could keep someone in prison for the rest of their life if they want to. In the same way, a judge can render a judgment that could be completely unfair and not punish one someone appropriately that should be punished appropriately for wrongdoing or crime that they've done. And both are just as detrimental in many different ways. And it's interesting as he pictures God here, like a judge, he says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty and judges would sit when they would listen to cases culturally. And then they would stand when they would render their judgment at the end. And so he pictures God here. Now notice verse one, he pictures God standing up. The idea is God is rendering his judgment. And now God is rendering his judgment against the judges. And he says, how long will you Continue to do evil and be offenders and be criminal in the way that you're handling your authority. And boy, I'll tell you, uh, that happens to this day. Misjudgment, judges who are acting in partiality, who are not interpreting the law properly and rendering just judgments, but are operating in ways that are corrupt, that are immoral, that are, that are just causing more problems, that are increasing crime rates. And again, just so sad, whether it's punishing someone way too severely or whether it's not punishing someone properly who is a criminal offender, God here is not pleased with such. And so he says, how long is this going to go on when you'll judge unjustly and show partiality? And then verse 3, notice he, he sort of reproves them for what they should be doing. He says, defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand, notice, of the wicked. So what is a judge technically supposed to be doing or the civil you know, uh, you know, justice system. What, what, what's the proper thing? Well, a few terms right there, verse three, they're to be providing defense and protection against evil and wrongdoing. That's what police departments are supposed to do. That's what judges are supposed to do. That's what, you know, you know, judicial systems are supposed to provide defense to protect the innocent against being, you know, harmed, to do justice to those who are being taken advantage, to deliver people and to free people from the hand of wicked individuals. See, the whole reason why we need a civil justice system in this present culture is because of the sinfulness of humanity. And because sin exists in humanity on this earth, in order to regulate the sinfulness of humanity and the wickedness and the evil inside of human hearts, God has established authority and justice and those who function in police departments and judges and civil roles That's to help suppress sin to a degree, because if that doesn't happen, it would just run rampant and it would go out of control. So God has established those things to help us. The problem is, is then those judicial systems abuse their authority and they begin to use their authority in an unhealthy way where it becomes corrupt rather than exercising their authority in a proper way. And the whole thing gets really messy all of a sudden because God doesn't see them using their role properly. 
You know, this passage here reminds me of Second Chronicles chapter 19 as well, where let me read to you what's stated there, which applies well to what's being described here. Second Chronicles chapter 19 in verses 6 and 7 tells us this. It says, say to the judges of the land, take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, listen, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Now, therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you and take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality nor taking bribes. So God says, yes, you have the role to judge, but you judge on my behalf. So God says, take that seriously. He exhorted the judges, take notice to what you're doing. Don't judge, you don't judge for man's purposes, but you says you judge for the Lord. So again, this is something God's established. And therefore God says, this is what judges should be doing. This is what should be happening, providing defense and protection, freeing people from being oppressed or preyed upon by wicked individuals, because that's what will happen in a culture. That will happen automatically. So God's established those with that role to function in that way. Now, because they were neglecting this duty and they had become corrupt in the judicial system, verse five tells us that God says of them, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness and look at the result. All the foundations of the earth are un stable so there's the picture when you have corrupt judges when you have a corrupt judicial system which they did then and sadly in many ways there are places where we still do now have corrupt judges and a corrupt judicial system he says they don't know they don't understand they're abusing their authority they're walking about in darkness and here's the result of a corrupt judicial system verse 5 the foundations of the earth become unstable. It causes instability in a society. And and a culture, rather than being healthy and stable and safe and secure, just becomes chaotic. And, And things become disorderly and the foundations begin to crumble in a society and become very unstable when judges and those in the that role begin to abuse their power and act in corrupt ways. Verse six, God declares, I said, you are gods. There's our term again, Elohim, those with authority making judgments. And all of you are children of the most high, but then God's rebuke, but you shall die like men and fall just like one of the princes. In other words, God's saying, despite the fact that you may have a degree of authority, whether you're a prince Whether you're a ruler, whether you're a judge, God says at the end of the day, never forget you're mortal. You're a mortal person and you will die like every other prince and like every other man. Never forget, no matter how much power or authority or role you have in your position, that you are just like every other human being. That you're mortal, that you're no different and that they would have that awareness. He says, all of you are children of the most high. Now the idea there where he says all of you are children of the most high, the implication is is God's offspring. Those created by God because certainly we know if we keep scripture in context and let scripture interpret scripture, we are not all spiritually automatically by default in nature children of God spiritually. We're all created by God in his image, in his likeness and so in a sense We are all the children of God in a sense generally of that we are all the offspring of God. We've all been created by God. God has given life to every one of us. And so in that sense, in a physical manner, we are God's offspring and God's creation. However, the Bible makes it very clear that in order to become a child of God spiritually, you must be born again of the spirit. That's how we become children of God, because the scripture also speaks about how there are those, Ephesians 2, who are children of wrath. Jesus himself said, speaking to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, he said, you you are of your father, the devil. In other words, Jesus made it very clear that there are two spiritual fathers, whether people want to, well, you know, swallow that, and that's difficult. What do you mean, I'm a child of the devil? Well, biblically, there are only two options, (laughs) 
Either you are a spiritual child because you've been born again of the spirit. You now have God as your father spiritually. Or the only other option is you're a silly child of the devil spiritually, created by God. God loves you. Your life has value. But spiritually, your father, the authority over your life and the spiritual control of your life is still the devil, which is a very tragic thing. And so here the psalmist is, is kind of bringing the reality of the mortality no matter what person has a role or position in their life, he says, look, it's appointed for every man to die once. So if you've gone from being created by God to becoming a child of God, that's very important. No matter who somebody is or how important they are, they're still one day going to face their maker. And it's important to realize that accountability exists. So he calls upon the Lord in verse 8 to deal with this corrupt system of the judges abusing their power. He says, arise, O God, judge the earth. Lord, you judge the earth. You're a righteous judge for you shall one day inherit, he says, all the nations. Now, Psalm 83, we'll see, is basically a cry for deliverance. And it seems particularly because aggression had mounted against the nation of Israel. And so, again, we can't tie this to a particular battle. There are those who try and look at what's being described here and tie it to different conflicts that happened in the history of Israel I don't think anyone really fits perfectly well, but this was clearly a time the psalmist is describing when it seems there was a confederation of different nations who had rallied together and were coming in aggression against the nation of Israel. Look, that has happened many times in history, and history is still replaying itself if you just watch what's going on around the world. In fact, some of it you'll see is, I mean, almost picturesque of the current news. I mean, so the psalmist is crying for deliverance because of this aggression coming against the nation of Israel. And he says, verse one, do not keep silent, O God, do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. In other words, he's saying, God, please arise, act on our behalf, come to our defense. Don't be passive, Lord, for behold, here's the reason, verse two, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people, referring to the people of Israel, the chosen nation of Israel, and consulted together against your sheltered ones. Now look at this, verse four. I mean, I have this circled. They have said, these are the enemies, the enemy nations. They have said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. I mean, listen to some of the current mantra that's being expressed by nations, by terrorist organizations, by extreme Islamic groups that hate the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. I mean, is that not the type of language? I mean, that could be a... A, a opening statement in some of their sermons. The things that they're saying that are on you know, public media outlets, come, let us cut them off from being a nation. You know, those who refer to America as the great Satan and Israel as the little Satan. Those who say that they need to exterminate, completely eradicate the Jewish people and get rid of the nation of Israel are claiming these same things today. Let us cut them off from being a nation. They don't deserve to be a nation. And that the nation, the name of Israel would be remembered no more. We need to wipe out their existence if we're going to do what is necessary to accomplish our tasks. He says, verse five, for they have consulted together, notice with one consent. Well, it's interesting how even a common enemy can be a unifying factor. You know, I mean, just crazy, crazy individuals that have satanic, anti-Semitic you know, attitudes and, and can just be you know, out to lunch. But yet, boy, the one thing they agree upon, we need to wipe out the nation of Israel. There's just this hatred, this animosity, and it stems from verses 1 through 4 tell us. It actually stems from a hatred from God, of God. Because if you hate God, then you hate everything that God loves and God represents. And one of the things that is very pivotal as a part of God's eternal plan is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people and Jerusalem. That is the epicenter from God's perspective. It's not Washington, DC. 
It's not Moscow. It's not London. It's nowhere else. It's Jerusalem. Because God's eternal plan of the ages functions through that pathway. And so because of that, those who hate God, Satan himself, that are being directed by Satan's inspirations, they hate the nation of Israel. They hate what happens and transpires from Jerusalem because the devil himself understands that's where Jesus is coming back and is going to set up his throne. And so there's this aggression. You know, it's interesting. If you read Zechariah chapter 12 prophetically, it says that in the last days that nations would come together in unity and aggression against the Jewish people and against Jerusalem. It says that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, would become like a cup of trembling and people would be drunk. The idea is in a picturesque, they would be drunk over that city and what goes on there in Jerusalem. Interesting analogy, drunk. The idea is, is you know, when a person is drunk, right, they're, they're, they're aggressively bold. And their judgment is just not even rational. And that's the idea. People would have just irrational thinking, but there would be real bold aggression because people would be drunk with hatred towards the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And Zechariah describes how that will happen. He says they've consulted together with one consent. They form, he says, verse five, a confederacy against you. And then he begins to describe some of those nations that he's referring to in that day that it was happening with. The tents of Edom, referring to the Edomites, and the Ishmaelites. Now, that would be the southern area geographically below Israel. Moab and the Hagrites and Gebal and Ammon and Amalek. These were perennial enemies of Israel. They represent, if you look at a Bible map, the eastern district to the east of the nation of Israel. Philistia. Philistia or the Philistines referred to the western coastal area. That's where the Philistines were typically located at. And then he mentions the inhabitants of Tyre, which is modern day Lebanon, which is north of Israel. And typically they were friendly with Israel at times, but here they're in aggression towards them. He mentions also Assyria has joined with them and they have helped the children of a lot. And Assyria would be a reference to the area today that we know as Syria and part of Iraq. So what's being described there, just in a picturesque way, verses six through eight, is north and south and east and west, all of these enemies surrounding Israel. All of these surrounding nations with a unified hatred and animosity and aggression wanting to go in and destroy Israel. Modern day newspaper stuff the same thing that's transpiring even what happened in that day because Zechariah 12 again describes how this will ultimately happen and Zechariah describes that when that does happen in a physical sense and they truly come against them that God's going to intervene supernaturally and is going to fight on behalf of his people here the psalmist understands they are surrounded by the aggression of the confederation of these different nations coming against them and look what he says verse 9 deal with them as with Midian and Sisera as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor and became as refuse or just wasted trash on the earth. He refers to there to the victory that God brought through uh, there in Judges chapter 4 and 5. Deborah and, 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 and sisters, they came against them. Deborah and Barak, remember when they fought against them and there was the conquest there. And that was the occasion where Deborah said, look, if you're not going to be courageous, then do it. God's going to give victory still because God's going to work on behalf of his people. But God's going to give all the credit for the victory to a woman. Because you're a passive, cowardly man. And it should have been him leading the army. But because he wasn't willing and because he was weak willed and he had no backbone, she rebuked him and said, God's going to still get victory, but God's going to give all the glory to a woman. And the idea is, and you're going to look like a fool because you're a passive coward. But yet God still intervened and God gave the victory. Judges 4 and 5 describe that victory that he refers to there. And then verse 11, he says, and make their nobles like Ureb and Zeb and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession so those names there, Urib and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna, uh, those were references to the princes of the Midianites. And what he's referring to there is the victory that God gave through Gideon. 
In the book of Judges, we're told there in Judges 6, 7, and 8 how God used Gideon, this very unlikely individual, to bring about great victories over these princes of the Midianites, though they were boasting so arrogantly, yeah, we're going to go in and we're going to conquer the pastures of God and we're going to take for ourselves. And God raised up the weakest, most unlikely, insignificant individual who had no courage and yet God called him and God enabled him and God showed his strength through the weakness of Gideon and brought about this great victory. Again, the picture there is what the psalmist is saying is, Lord, you've brought victory before. Yes, this looks like we're surrounded and we're doomed and there is no way we're getting out of this, but God, in the most unlikely ways, the most unconventional ways, right? God worked through Deborah instead of Barak through a military general, the way the victory should have been won. And then God used Gideon, the person that nobody else would have thought would be useful. And God brought his victory. And he's saying, God, would you just intervene and do it again for us? Help us, Lord. I, I love those first three words. In fact, I actually circled them in my, my Bible there. Verse 9, the, this prayer, deal with them. That's a great prayer to pray sometimes. <laughs> Lord, deal with them. Lord, I can't do it. It wouldn't be right for me to strangle them. There's been a few times when I've said, Lord, deal with them. I'd like to strangle them, but I'll get arrested. You won't. You're God. Lord, would you strangle them for me? Would you deal with them for me? Lord, would you bring judgment upon them? Because, Lord, what they're doing is wrong. Right? There are times where people do wrong things to us. There are times where people bring harm or people, you know, bring, you know, threat or difficulty or we find ourselves facing something where we've been treated wrongly and and there's that struggle and that tension. And and what a wonderful thing to be able to say, whether it's someone threatening you with wrong or someone who's done you wrong to say, Lord, would you just deal with them? Deal with them. It's a great prayer because then all the responsibility is on God's shoulders and he has the right to do what is the righteous and the just thing. And nobody's going to hold him accountable. He's God. And, and he'll do it in a very fair and an equitable way. And he'll deal with wrongdoing. And he won't overdo it, maybe the way that we would in some way. And just we can just kind of commit it to the Lord. Deal with them. He says, verse 13, oh, my God, make them like the whirling dust. So he's offering God some suggestions now. How about like the chaff that blows away before the wind? Just blow them away, Lord. As the fire burns the woods... How about a forest fire? As the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Lord, they've intimidated us. How about you and your authority intimidate them? Show them you're a mighty God. Fill their faces with shame. That is, make them feel ashamed of what they've done. Lord, humble them. May they feel ashamed. May they feel shame for the wrong thing that they've done. May it plague their conscience, Lord. Let them feel the shame for what they've done. He says, verse 16, though, notice the reason he wanted ultimately their brokenness, not just that they'd be punished. He says that they may seek your name. Boy, that's interesting. Oh, Lord, let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yet let them be put to shame and perish that they may know. He says, verse 18, that you whose name alone is the Lord are the most high over all the earth. Lord, they think they're so high. They think they're so powerful. They're so haughty. They can do what they're doing. They're coming against us. They're attacking us. He says, Lord, would you just break them and humble them and and Lord, do it in such a way that the end result, he says, is that they may turn and know that you're the most high God, that they might come to know you. And they ultimately says there, verse 16, that they may start to seek your name. You know, I mean, that's the greatest desire we really should have for all of our enemies, ultimately, is that God would deal with them, but not just that God would deal with them, destroy them, but because God would change them, right? That they may realize the reason why they do the wrong that they do is because they're not in right relationship with God, and they don't have a sense of conscience or a sense of accountability. And so here the psalmist prays, Lord, break them and humble them. But do in a way that on the backside of that, they may come to know, boy, I guess we're not as big as we thought we are. And and maybe we should submit to God's authority and that they would start to seek God themselves. And and here's the thing, and be changed just like us. Because we would still be acting just like them if God didn't change us, right? Because quite honestly, we all kind of have the exact same testimony. Jerk saved. 
right? I mean, you, you can fill in all the extra details you want there. Jerk, saved. That, that's, God's done the same thing in all of our lives to a degree. Maybe some of us realized a little bit more how much our jerk meter was, but it was the same for all of us. We, we were a rotten individual and we would have been headed down the same, and we did plenty of wrong things to people ourselves. And so ultimately, you know, we want the Lord to deal with people that really he would ultimately bring their heart into a right relationship with him and they would come to know him. Psalm 84, it's a short one. Let's look at this last one before we conclude. He begins here by speaking of his longing for the house of God. It seems he's been separated from worship at the temple. And again, I love the picture of this because notice this is the heart of a lover of God who's not able to be with the people of God. This is the heart of a worshiper of God, of a lover of God, who's been separated from the house of the Lord. And the psalmist's heart isn't, oh, whatever, I didn't really miss much, no big deal. It's not his attitude at all. Look at his heart here. He says, how lovely is your tabernacle, Lord, your dwelling place. Again, O Lord of hosts, the tabernacle was where worship transpired. It was where the people met with God and met with one another to be encouraged spiritually. And he says, oh, Lord, how lovely is, is the house of the Lord, your dwelling place. Why? Because out in the world, it's the total opposite, right? How ugly is the world? How lovely is the tabernacle of the Lord? We live in a world that's got a lot of ugly stuff out there. So for no other reason, I don't know about you, I like coming to the house of the Lord because something beautiful happens in the house of the Lord. There's you know, beautiful people, we do beautiful things, and there's something lovely and wonderful and refreshing to come out of all the ugliness of the world and the hardship of a world that's directed by sin and that's been corrupted. And he says, Lord, how lovely is your tabernacle. My soul, he says, verse 2, longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord, that is the place, the courts of the Lord, where God's people would assemble together outside of the tabernacle. They would hear God's word and prayers would be lifted up and songs would be sung and the sacrifices would ascend up as they would bring their sacrifices and know their sins were forgiven. He says, oh Lord, I long and faint for your courts, for the place of worship, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. See, the psalmist is acknowledging his hunger spiritually. The reality that he has a hunger and a thirst spiritually within. And he says, Lord, my heart and my flesh, that I'm hungering for you as the living God. That's what I'm longing for inside. He sensed that need within himself. And look, every person the Bible teaches very clearly has a, a hunger and a thirst spiritually. We may not even realize that that's what it is, but in the same way, God physically has created us with certain needs and drives, right? You have a God-given natural hunger drive. You have a need for moisture. You have a thirst drive. We have a desire and a need for air. So again, we have these natural God-given drives and desires from needs that exist within us. In the same way, we have a spiritual need in all of our lives. So there is a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst. Now, we may not realize that's what it is, and so we try and fill that with everything else under the sun. We try and fill it with this or that, and we try all these different things not realizing what I'm genuinely thirsting after is an experience with God. What I'm really hungry for is a meaningful encounter with the living God, my creator. And so we spend at times portions of our life trying to fill that, hunger and that thirst with all types of other things and it's like jesus talked to the woman in john chapter four at the well and she was trying all these other wells out there in the world she was drinking from this well and drinking from that well and drinking from this well and she was still thirsty because jesus said what you're really thirsting for is in an experience with god the living water of the living god of the spirit and here the psalmist is just acknowledging that reality he's saying lord my soul it faints my 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 Heart of my flesh are crying out for you as the living God. It reminds us of Psalm 42, where he talks about as the deer pants after the water, so my soul pants after you. And boy, would to God that we would all become more sensitive to and more yielded to the reality of that inward longing for God in our lives. You know, and, and I wonder sometimes, and maybe this is a silly analogy, but 
you know, sometimes we aren't experiencing a normal hunger drive physically. Why? Because we're always snacking on all kinds of other things, right? Chips and ice cream and chocolate chip cookies. And because we're snacking on this, snacking on that, then it's dinner time. Why don't you eat your dinner? I'm not really hungry. Why? Oh, you've been snacking all day. And I wonder sometimes if maybe the reason why we don't find ourselves saying, oh, my soul longs and my heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. I'm hungry for God. I'm so thirsty for an experience with God is maybe because we're snacking on so many other worldly things that we're kind of just semi-filled and distracted and we're in some ways desensitizing the genuine spiritual hunger and thirst within our lives. And so that we don't have a proper longing being expressed, but it's there. It's there, and God wants us to be like this, to have this desire. Look, he's envious of even the the sparrows. He says, verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. So as he was in the temple precincts or the tabernacle, he, he, he saw where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. So he says, Man, I'm so envious. Those sparrows, they can just fly in there and make a little nest. (laughs) And they can be in your house all the time. And they can stay there and experience your presence continually. He says in light of that, verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell, that is to remain, to constantly be present in your house. They will still be praising you. So he's saying, man, how, how blessed are those who get to continually dwell in the house of the Lord. The idea is to have an ongoing experience with the presence of God. He says, because they will still be praising you. The idea is they get to engage in the highest human experience, which is what? Worshiping God. Because that is the highest human experience. The highest human experience that any one of us can can encounter is, is to have an encounter with God, to be experiencing God. That's what we were created for ultimately. And so he says, those who get to dwell in your house, he says, they, they will still be praising you. They get the opportunity to continually experience worshiping God and experiencing the very presence of God, having an encounter with him. And he says, boy, that is a blessing. And he says, those who do such are blessed. You get to experience a blessed life. You know, the Bible makes it very clear. A lot of times what we picture as a blessed life is very different than what we would say is a blessed life. The Bible says, blessed is the individual who's rooted and dwelling in the house of God. People who are always in God's house. You know, tonight you're more blessed than people who aren't here tonight because you're in the house of God. Now, when people hear this on the podcast, they're going to write me nasty emails for saying that. But (laughs) it's for your sake, extra credit for you. And someone will take it wrongly and be mad that I said that. But there is a blessing in being in God's house. God said that. I didn't say it. It's right there. There's a blessing in being in the house of the Lord. There's, there's a worship that's lifted. Our focus is you know, turned and we're praising the Lord instead of experiencing many of the frustrations often that we wouldn't be you know, if we weren't doing such a thing. So he just says this is a great blessing to be able to be in the house of the Lord. And I think we should never diminish the value of gathering as God's people. You know, I think that's a great mistake. That we're, oh, you're just being legalistic. I, I just, I see times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. I see the Bible telling us that we're not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves. And all the more as we see the day approaching. And I don't know about you, you know, and I haven't been a pastor the entire time I've been a Christian, but I have never one time in my life, Sunday morning, multiple services or a Wednesday night or a Sunday night or a men's Bible study. I've never one time gone to God's house and afterwards said, man, I really wish I did something else. I don't know what I went there for. I should have just done something. I never have had that experience. Typically, it's I get blessed in some way. I'm glad that even though I didn't feel like doing that, that I went. Because <laughs> something refreshing and wonderful happened spiritually. And here the psalmist knew that. And so he was craving and longing. Somehow he's been detached and he missed. He says, oh, so blessed. Those birds, they get to stay there in a nest all day long. And he says, verse 5, blessed is the man also whose strength is in you. So again, another indication of a blessed life, someone who knows that their own strength is not sufficient. How blessed, how happy is the individual who knows that their own strength is not sufficient? 
but that their strength is in you. Lord, I need your strength because I am not able to do things on my own apart from you. And he says, also, blessed is the man whose heart is set on pilgrimage. What's that mean on pilgrimage? Well, pilgrimage means that, that you realize that you're, you're on a journey and, and you're not home. You're a pilgrim. You're in a foreign land. And so you're just passing through, like Peter says, that we're, we're, we're sojourners and pilgrims here on this earth. And he says, the blessed individual is realizing they need God's strength because their own strength isn't enough. And the blessed individual also realizes this earth is not our home. We're just passing through. And your heart is set on pilgrimage. You realize you're a citizen of heaven. And that really your time of dwelling on this earth is, is just like a pilgrim passing through. You're just a sojourner in a foreign country. So it should always feel foreign here. You should always find yourself feeling unsettled here. You know, I think perhaps some reason why we're always doing certain things that we're doing as human beings to try and, you know, upgrade our home or upgrade our standard of living because it's like we're longing for heaven. And so we're always trying to do something else to make our experience better when the reality is it's just a testament we're never settled, right? We're never satisfied. We always long for something a little nicer. Well, that's actually a spiritual reality. You're longing for streets of gold and the splendor of a glassy sea and to be in the presence of the Lord because we're just passing through here. And the more we understand that, he says, blessed is the individual whose heart is set on pilgrimage because you navigate the earth much better that way. You realize I'm just passing through here. And so you make your decisions that way and your value system is that way that you're, you're on a pilgrimage ultimately to heaven. That's the most important thing. And as you're pilgrimage through the earth, it's hard. Notice he says, verse six, as they pass through the valley of Baca, and that word means weeping. So he's talking about the valley of weeping. So as the, the person whose heart is set on pilgrimage, who's walking through this earth, they pass through the valley of weeping, of suffering, Hard times, ideas, and that, again, notice, we pass through those things. We're not, we don't stay in them forever. The psalmist says, Psalm 23, that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We walk through the valleys and the low times of weeping and suffering and hardship. We walk through them, but notice he says, the blessed man makes those things a spring. The idea is a well of refreshment. The rain also covers it with pools, and they go from strength to strength. The idea is ever-increasing strength because each one continues to appear before God in Zion. So he pictures another thing about the blessed man is the blessed man, because he knows that he's on a pilgrimage and this earth isn't the end, but they're just passing through. They can therefore pass through not only the mountaintops, but they can pass through the valleys of hardship times of weeping and suffering and difficulty when it's not easy and it's very hard, but they can pass through those things and they find a way to make even those hardest times like a spring of refreshment. And why? Because they keep going and appearing before God in the house of the Lord and they worship their way as they walk through the valleys. And so therefore the hardest things become some of the most beneficial things, right? And we know that. We can go through some of the deepest valleys, the hardest times, but if we keep seeking the Lord and worshiping the Lord, it's amazing how you can take the hardest times in your life and you can sink the deepest roots down into God and those things become the greatest spiritual spring of refreshment and wonderful things happen. You know, how many of us here could not testify tonight that it was some of the hardest, deepest suffering and valleys that we went through in our life that brought about some of the greatest spiritual springs of the living water of God doing wonderful things in our soul that changed us and how God is able to use that. If we realize that we're just on a pilgrimage, he says, verse eight, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield. Look upon the face of your anointed Verse 10, we've often heard this statement before. It's a good one. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. The idea is better than a thousand days somewhere else doing something else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. There's a call for usher ministry. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So again, the psalmist just saying, you know, if I had the option of giving me one day in the presence of God, worshiping God, seeking God, serving God, I would take one day knowing God, worshiping God, seeking God, praising God, than a thousand days on this earth doing anything else that's worthless and meaningless and empty. He says, I would rather be a, just a, a lowly doorkeeper, just opening and closing the door in the house of God than to have the opportunity to dwell in the tents of all those out there who are doing wickedness. Again, the idea is just contentment in God. The Bible tells us godliness with contentment is great gain. There's something really valuable when we can facilitate and learn. Paul says, I've learned to be content, Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, I've learned to abase and I've learned to abound. In other words, to abase means to have nothing, to struggle, to suffer, to be in poverty, to be lacking and going through a hard, lean, difficult time. To abound, blessed, excess, surplus, life's good, things are going great. Paul says, I've learned how to be content in both states. That's interesting. Paul said, I've learned how to go through hard times and to be content when it's hard because I'm content in God and God's taking care of me and my fulfillment and happiness and satisfaction is in God and God will work through my difficulties. And Paul says, I've also learned how to be blessed and I don't feel guilty about it. And Paul said, I can abound and realize, oh, I don't have to feel, just God's being good. I'm, I'm being blessed right now. And, it's going, and Paul says, I've learned how to be content in both. That's the key. Learning how to be content because what is our contentment in? Our contentment is in our experience with God. And that's what he's saying here. Lord, I'll take a day in your courts and a, being a doorkeeper in your house than a thousand elsewhere doing something else with wicked people and emptiness. For the Lord God, he says, is a sun and a shield. That's an interesting picture. God is a sun. The sun provides light. The sun provides life. The sun is what gives life on the earth. God provides light and life. And a shield, God becomes our protection. He's our shield and our protector. And the Lord will give grace and glory, whatever we need. He can give grace. I don't know how I'm going to do this. What did Jesus say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace will be enough. My grace will be sufficient for you because my power will be demonstrated in your weak time. And he says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Again, where does blessing come from? Trusting in the Lord. And, and he gives this wonderful promise, the end of verse 11 there. The Lord becomes our son, our shield. He gives grace and glory. And he says, from those who walk uprightly, he will withhold no good thing. All our responsibility is to do what? To walk uprightly. The idea to walk uprightly means to walk in an honorable way, with integrity, with honesty, and in an honorable way. So in essence, God's promise is this. All I ask from you, walk in a way that honors me. And if you walk in a way that honors me, God's promise is, I will give you everything that's good for you that you need. I won't withhold anything good from you. Well, wait a minute. God's not giving me this. Maybe it's not good for you. Maybe you think it would be good for you, but maybe God doesn't think it would be good for you. God hasn't given me this yet. Maybe it's not good for you yet. I don't know. But the Bible just tells us, you honor God and he won't withhold anything good. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, they'll be added to you. God will just add things into your life in the right way, in the right time, because he is a gracious father. He's not stingy. He's not gonna withhold something that's good for your life. And how wonderful to rest in that, to just walk honorably serving God and just let God bring into your life the things he has in his way and time. Let's stand together and pray, Father.